Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. And I am with uh, Tony and Francis Papalardo from New York, from Long Island, New York. Welcome, Tony and Francis. Hello, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having us. Happy, happy to have you guys. It's been a very fun weekend. Tony and Francis and I work together. We're business associates, business partners uh, yep. through Excess. And uh, you guys are out here this weekend for the Brook Street competition. No, I'm joking. You're out here for <laughs> you know, a really great surf contest this weekend in Laguna, uh, the Brook Street competition. But you guys are and out someone here. Someone we know made it to the finals. Wow. Yeah. Very, I was very lucky to, uh, to get through in the, in the long board. Yeah, we're really proud of you. Thanks. Slayed I, it. I need that. I'm a child still. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, but it, we, uh, two things. We, you know, I live in Laguna Beach and uh, we have this great contest, the oldest surf contest on earth called the Brook Street Classic, and uh, this was, I think, the 55th wow. one we've had since That's 1959. That's really cool. Hmm. Um, doesn't happen every year. We have to have the right conditions. But um, So that was really cool, and maybe we'll get Brandy Faber on to, uh, to talk about that with us another time. But the real reason you're here, and we happen to, to kind of have an overlap with, with the contest that Excess sponsors, um, is because of a fundraiser with, with uh, Tahure, the Tahure Justice Center. Um, yep. And uh, you guys have been fairly involved in philanthropy, as well as uh, building businesses and helping other people. And it was really great that you came out to support that as well. So thank you for uh, for joining us at our table, for um, bidding on items, and for being a part of it. Yeah, it was our honor. It was really amazing to see you guys set a pretty pretty big goal, and then not not just meet it, but crush it. I mean, you really you, you got double what you were expecting, and um, it was just awesome. Yeah, it looks like we raised close to half a million dollars tonight, which was yeah, really cool. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible and organization, incredible people behind it. It was just a really beautiful night. Thank you. Yeah, Tahare, um, we'll probably post a link to it, but Tahare basically uh, helps women who are escaping gender violence. So if they're escaping uh, genital mutilation or rape or uh, forced marriage, uh, coming to America as refugees uh, under American law, they have every right to come here, and we have an obligation to protect them. That's part of our immigration law, and Tahere uh, helps them uh, navigate that system, which is fairly complicated, four times more complicated than the U.S. tax code, apparently. So uh, without Tahere, um, you have a 16% chance of getting admitted to the United States. With an attorney, you have 47% chance of getting admitted, and with Tahure, you get, have a 99% chance, or, 90, or more than 90% chance of being admitted. So it's a very effective organization. Uh, all the money that they get gets amplified through their programs, so it's a four-to-one return on the, on the money you donate. And um, anyways, we've done some fundraising on my, uh, my Facebook page, and of course we do direct fundraising uh, through events and things we do with them, uh, Sarah and I do, and it's great to have our business partners who join us at something so cool. Yeah, so it was, it was a great event. It yeah, really was. Th thank you. It was, I thought so too. Um, but let's talk about um, about you guys a little bit. So you're you're how old are you? Both, the, just so you don't mind me asking. Francis is thirty one. Oh, Francis, how do you get out of bed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm thirty eight now. Um, you know, and uh, I just like to kind of give Francis his age. And a lot of people don't ask about my age after I give hers, but figure for the for the program, it's good if I give my age as well. So. So um, Francis is 31, and Tony, how old are you? I'm, I'm 38, just to be clear. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wow. I know. It, it takes me quite a while. I mean, it's a challenge for her to get out of bed, but for me, it's it's near impossible. Nearly impossible. Yeah. I'm going to move your mic a teeny bit. I think this will work better for both of you. There you go. For some reason. Um, still <laughs> working out the kinks and the bugs on the Kick Aspirational podcast technology here. <laughs> but um, 
What I would like to get into is, is kind of your histories and your business and how you work with a lot of people to help them. You know, the Kick Aspirational podcast is about breaking through barriers in your own life um, mm -hmm. and helping other people do the same thing. I think you know, the stories, the questions that I got originally that kind of spawned this were people saying, you know, how, do you, how did you do it? How did you create excess? Which I really take to mean, how do I uh, create the life I want to live? How yeah. do I create the yep. world I want to live in? Yep. And, um, and it's hard. You know, it's, it's not easy. There's a, we're all given formulas when we grow up. We're told mm -hmm. to follow this path and, you know, good things will happen and good things don't always happen. And even if good things do happen, it may, may, may not be the good things you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we can talk about some of that. But tell us, maybe, if you don't mind, so, so you, are you both from New York originally? So I am originally from Alabama. Alabama. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know. Bama. I don't the have Bama. the accent. Yeah, I just... Uh, That's a hard sell, Francis. I don't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I moved to New York um, about a little over eight years ago now. So I am a permanent resident. I did not expect to be, but I am embracing it and loving it. And um, how'd, you end up, how'd you end up in New York? I moved there to pursue dance. I was a professional dancer. I started dancing when I was 15 professionally. And um, when you say professional dancer, that's a, it can mean I a lot of things. I know it's a broad term. Yeah, really everything geared towards Broadway. So oh, good. Keep good. It, that's what I was keep thinking. Keep it PG. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not as many poles involved. No, no, not a one. But yeah, I um, <laughs> I moved to to New York for that reason. I was I was actually a tap dancer primarily. Okay. Uh, did a lot of cool stuff with, you know, um, just some some greats like Savion Glover and Gregory Hines and stuff like that growing up. It was really fun. And, um, yeah, that's ultimately what brought me to the Big Apple. And, Tony, what's what's your background? You're from you're from New York originally, right? Yeah, I'm from New York, born and raised. And, uh, your last name's Papalardo? Yeah, is yeah. That, uh, is that Dutch it's Cherokee? Jewish. That Jewish. Yeah, it's a Jewish name. <laughs> uh, Papalardo Wits. Papalardo Wits. Yeah, yeah. So very Italian. Yeah. There's a Papalardo uh, pizza company or something. Yeah, like yeah. And there's a famous skateboarder, skateboarder. a professional skateboarder. who's was, was kind of shoes. Yeah, it's kind of funny. We're, we're not related, but, but I actually um, uh, worked with him at a surf shop growing up. So it's just kind of funny. I mean, two Anthony Papalardos working together. It's same, not... Same entire name. Yeah. It's Anthony Papalardo. Yep. Wow. Does yeah. he go by Anthony? Yeah, he goes by Anthony. Nice. It's yeah. convenient when he wants to buy a pair of Converse All-Star sneakers with his names on it. Yeah. Name on it, because Anthony it, There's Papalardo, an Anthony Papalardo yeah. All-Star? Already established. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. There's no Dave Vanderveen All-Star. I mean, there is, but it doesn't, I have to put it on myself. Well, we you should make it happen. You just yeah. got to become a professional skateboarder like myself. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so Tony and Francis, uh, how did you guys how did you guys meet? We actually how'd you end up in business together. Well, we actually met on Match.com. You know, and that's not a joke. You actually did. Yeah, no, no, no that's, that's not a joke. Um, <laughs> is that because Tinder wasn't working, or what's going on? Yeah, my, my Tinder account was was broken. Um, it was so Tinder wasn't it? Yeah, it actually was. Yeah. So you know, which was good for 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 Francis, you know, because she was she would have been all over that. Um, <laughs> not myself, but you know, don't swipe. Yeah, exactly. So no, but we we met on Match, and it was um, I I kind of wasn't really even expecting anything from it because I kind of had a whole bunch of match dates that that didn't go very well. So we had a, we had a what, great, what, what did you do? Ah, uh, nothing. I didn't do anything. They, it was just a lot of false advertising. Um, <laughs> so like the first date, I guess we could talk about it. Okay. I have a friend right. who's in his late forties, like me, who's single, who, who advertises that he's in his late thirties. 
Yeah. And then he meets girls and they're like, what is this time machine? This <laughs> music. He's a great guy. He's hilarious. And he has a girlfriend he's had for a long time now. He's quite a bit younger. Yeah. She's like, why did you lie about your age? And he's like, well, if I'd said I was in, your, in my 40s, would you have, would my profile have hit yours? And she's like, no. He goes, see, that's why. <laughs> hilarious. I, I'm, yeah. I have no experience with dating apps, but I, I find the stories around them really, really curious. So how yeah. did the dating app work for you guys? Uh, well, the first date I went on, um, I took her out to um, this girl, out to lunch. And actually, no, it was dinner. And I was like, we're okay. We're talking about Francis now. No, we're not talking about Francis. We're talking <laughs> so, about someone so the, else. So this is a story the first, not about Francis. Yeah, the first match date. You took her right. to Olive Garden. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know where you took her. Well, it, it was a place in the city. And um, when, I, when I, I walked into, you know, the, the lobby of the restaurant, and uh, I didn't see anyone that I thought was this girl. And there was a... a, a, a a bigger girl, uh, a tall girl, um, that was standing in the corner. I didn't, I didn't think that this was the girl, which is, you know, fine. And then I called the date and then I hear this girl's phone ring and then my back is facing towards her. And then when she picks up the phone and said she was here, I was frightened. Um, and then she came up behind me and hit me on the back and I felt like it was, like a linebacker. And at this point, I, I said, I'm, I'm probably, probably, I might have a few drinks during this, this, this date. Um, but she was very nice. Um, we, I was very polite. Um, it just wasn't what I expected from her profile. Yeah. So then I decided to do coffee dates from that point forward, which meant just nice, we'll grab coffee. We're not going to go out to dinner. Let me actually get to see you and know you before we decide. That's a good idea in general, right? It worked out a lot better. Yeah. Um, and then I actually had gotten off a match for a while and then got back on and then uh, sent a message to Francis. And my message was incredibly, uh, you know, impactful. It said, like, hi, I like your profile. Write me back if yeah, you're interested. It was pretty simple. I joined um, my- two lines. <laughs> so, Francis, Tony's seven years older than you. How did the, was that? Yes. Did that fit the profile of men you were looking for? Um, well, te- I did not lie about my profile. <laughs> the only reason why I joined Match was not to actually find someone to date. I know that sounds strange, but when I moved to You're Manhattan... You were just looking for a... No, <laughs> wasn't saying that either. There were no hand signals there, really by the way, if you're, if you're listening. Here. I'm noticing there's two against one. I need, I need Sissy here to back me up. Um, no, but I, my roommate... My roommate at the time had, had made some friends outside of the entertainment world, mm. which the entertainment world can, um, it can be really great, but I mean, probably like any industry, if that's all, if all you're hanging out with is just people in your industry, sometimes it can get a little... Fairly insular? Yeah, a um, little suffocating. So I was looking for people to, I don't know, just you know, talk, talk about other things with other than auditions and and shows and who was dating who and whatever. So my roommate had joined Match and she didn't find anyone to really date, but she had made friends. And I found that really interesting um, because it seemed sort of difficult at the time for me because I was so new in Manhattan to make friends outside. And so that's the whole reason why I joined it. It's because I just thought I'd find somebody with common interest outside of the entertainment industry right and so tony wrote me and his profile said that he likes surfing and dave matthews band and i said sure 
that could be a friend. That could and be a friend. it turned into more than that. So. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have a child in common now as well as <laughs> <laughs> marriage. So, yeah. yeah <laughs> turned into a little bit more. We're, we're going to stay friends. Shared property. Yeah. And, um, and you're in business together, too. You're not just a couple. You're in yeah. business together. Tony, you, you had a business. Yeah. Work, we, we had worked together for a while. I, I worked with you before you met Francis. Yep. I mean, I can't take all the credit for it, but, uh, but I did. When, once you guys met, I did help really cement the relationship one night when I came to visit. I brought them a housewarming gift, which was a bottle of tequila, and Frances drank the whole thing by herself. Okay. Again, not true. Can we get a fact (laughs) checker? Just partially true. Does this podcast come with fact checkers? If I get more than 5,000 facts wrong, I get to be president. (laughs) There's a lot of false information happening here, so I'm going to have to get... No, this is good. So you guys meet, um, and Tony, you had a business. We had been working together with Excess, and we had a lot of fun events out in Long Island. In fact, you had come to me not long after we had kind of launched in the channel where you guys work, and and you were bugging me. You were like a a, you were a platinum level in our business, and you were saying, "Dave, Dave, we got to go surf. We got to go surf, right?" And uh, is that effectively what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah, pretty but, much. Uh, I mean, Francis here has a hard time with the facts, but you're agreeing with me. <laughs> no, so no, no, I'm, I'm very on point with my facts. That, that's, that's 100% accurate. And by the way, everything you've said is, is accurate tonight. Just, uh, you know, no. just to be clear. You know? so, so, so when you went, I think you had, your business had grown. You had hit some milestones that we look at and yep. I'm pretty excited about. And um I was, we were making a movie. This was about 2008. We are making a movie called Lost Profits. Yep. Filming in the, in the Indonesia. Uh, we were going on a boat trip, Mentawais, Mentawais, yeah. Mentawais, however you say it, off the coast of West Sumatra. And I invited you along on that. Yeah. That was a great trip. That was trip. kind of the first trip we did together. Yeah, it was the first trip we did together. Um, before that trip, I thought I wanted to do like towing surfing and surf like 60, 70 foot waves. And then after that trip, I realized I was never going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we surfed, uh, we paddled in, no towings. We paddled into waves that had maybe 15 plus foot faces. Oh, yeah, 20, 25. In my mind, it seemed like quite a bit larger. 50 foot faces. There were some big ones out there. Yeah. And they were breaking on very shallow reefs. And uh, yes, we had the, the, the cuts to prove it. Yeah. And there were some very good pros who got us into places that we had no business being, but we went anyways. It was yep. a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was really an so awesome wait, trip. Wait, you guys are saying those photos weren't Photoshopped? <laughs> no, no, they weren't Photoshopped. Um, we'll, we'll heavily edited, now. however. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we only show the good ones. There's a lot yeah. of bad ones. I remember looking at the photos with Tom Survey, who's a famous oh photographer. He was shooting that, that, the stills, and I would go, oh, man, look at, oh, that's so terrible. Oh, oh, and he would go, he said to me, he goes, David, everybody has bad photos. We only publish the good ones. And I, was like, <laughs> I had yes. fewer than the pros, but I still had some good ones. No, was, and Tony did as well. It was really fun. Great trip. Oh, so, um, so Tony, you continue to build business, and and uh, you guys meet on Match.com. Yeah. How did uh, how did you go from Match.com to a relationship? You know, that was more than just uh, you know friends, friends, yeah. friends with benefits, friends, whatever, <laughs> and then. Um, and, you know, basically being in a uh, dedicated relationship, getting married, and then working in a business together. And, and Francis, you joining a business that was, you know, really cranking by the time mm-hmm. you got involved. How did, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I told you that I was a dancer um, before, but I, I was looking 
uh, my path is shifting in a pretty dramatic way. I just lost my dad a couple of years before moving to New York. So um, I, I was searching for something else that I felt would provide my life with more significance and purpose than what I was doing at the time. Um, I also wanted to find something that was probably going to be a little more lucrative than uh, relying on dance for the rest of my life. Um, it's it's so, a great thing to do when you're in your 20s, but it's probably not going to last forever, right? Yeah, and I had no plan B right. at that time. So um, I was I was earnestly searching. I had no idea what I was going to do because that, that was my degree. That was my main skill set. That's what I'd worked on, you know, day in and day out since, you know, um, I was really 10 years old. Uh, so I didn't know what my other options were going to look like, but um, I was searching. So I was I was networking a lot in the city in Manhattan already, and I was honestly praying for something to come into my life that was going to be clear enough, a door, you know, a pathway for me to walk through. Um, so when I met Tony, I was surprised in many ways. I wasn't I wasn't like looking for someone like I said at the time. Mm. Um, so he. <laughs> he shot the arm. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, he uh, yeah he yes he shocked me with his good looks and he shocked me with um, just the way he spoke and the, the things that he was he was concerned about at his age, which to me was unique. And uh, we just were speaking the same language. Um, we were on the same page with the kind of vision we wanted to create, the lives we want to create, essentially customize our lives, which we talk about all the time, and. Um, I just didn't have a pathway for it, uh, but he did. And so when he when he showed me what he was doing and who he was connected with and the types of mentors and, and leaders that he had in his life that were taking him down the road that he was going down, yeah, um, it, it it was kind of a no-brainer. Right. So so you met a guy who was a little older, but you guys weren't that old then. This was, how long ago did you meet, by the way? How many years ago was it? Uh, over eight now. Eight, eight, yeah, because... Yeah. yeah, 2010-ish. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of right mm -hmm. after the Lost Profits trip, more or less. Yeah. 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 It's around that time. So, yeah, about a year after, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you met, and he had, a, you know, he was a nice guy who had purpose, who had a plan B, mm. who, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to put it in purely physical terms, but there was, there was a connection yeah, and there absolutely. was a direction and there was purpose. Yeah. And those were some of the things that were important to you and you're looking for. Yeah. And I, you know, a big thing for me, a big shift in my perspective at that time when my, when my father passed away, I mean, my whole, I had sort of like this existential crisis at that time. And, um, I remember, I mean, I, mean, I remember several things, but I remember at his visitation and funeral, it wasn't about um, it wasn't about reading off his resume and all the amazing, you know, uh, credentials he had stacked up. It was about... And your father was in the military? He was in... The, well, he was civilian, so he was the director of systems and cost analysis for AMCOM, which is Aviation and Missile Command for the Army. Okay. Um, so he, he had a pretty important position, a lot more important than I realized. I realized it more after he had passed. He right. had contributed to several textbooks that are still used in universities today for supply chain management and stuff like that. Um, but to us, he was just dad because that was the kind of guy he was. So he would leave work at work and um, he would come home and then he would do plays with us. And, uh, you know, he would he would make us our breakfast and, you know, he was just he was just a regular dad. Um, he wasn't defined by what he did did at, at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, 
after he passed away, we found a trunk of uh, medals and trophies and certificates that he had received that he never shared with us because he just wasn't, I don't know, he was more interested in our certificates and medals and trophies than his own. Sure. Um, so at his funeral, um, and, and, and rightly so, the people that flew in from all across the country wanted to share about moments that he had invested into them. Yeah. Time he spent with them when he, he went above and beyond, um, where he drove to the hospital before, you know, got there before their family did, or, um, you know, just took an extra, extra time out of his day to spend with someone, how much that meant to people and how much that impacted them. And um, when they I, were stuck and needed to break through effectively, exactly. he, he took the time to be somebody to help them break through. Absolutely. He was, he cared beyond. He cared beyond professional relationships. I mean, he was, he truly cared about people and it showed. In fact, another thing I found was he had a homemade bookmark. My dad always made homemade bookmarks, which I found really cheesy until after he passed, of course. And um, <laughs> one of the ones that he, he actually printed it like a hundred times in case I guess he lost the one. Um, but it, on the bookmark, it said, people are your most appreciable asset. Oh, that's awesome. And it was, and then it had a few points on, you know, investing into people. And I thought it was, yeah, pretty incredible. And so, so two things. Um, I noticed, yes, that people weren't paying attention to his credentials at the end of his life. It didn't matter. None of those awards and medals and trophies mattered. Right. What mattered were the moments and the time spent and the ways he invested, the way he influenced them, not the way he impressed them. That's what it was all about. And up until that point in my life, I was so focused on impressing. Right. And I was so focused on collecting the trophies and the medals and, and all of that. And, and um, that just really struck a chord with me that, you know, hey, oh my gosh, what if, you know, what if this was me in this moment? Of course, I had a lot of great people that, that loved me and cared about me, but how, how was I investing back into people at that time in my life? Sure. And um, I made a decision then that I wanted to, I wanted to switch, you know, the way that energy was flowing in my life and make sure it was flowing back out. To people rather than just kind of being all about me there's a really um, there's a ex, you talked about existential crisis and yeah. there's a really interesting ex, existential philosopher Gabriel Marcel who talks about you know one of the great things we can do in our existence is to be available to the other mm. and I think that's if I'm hearing you correctly I mean I think that's yeah. a lot of what you're talking about where what people remember and recall and repeat are that isn't the the great outcomes that happen necessarily, but it's the times when they were in crisis or had a need, a deep need. Mm. And your father, in that this case, made himself available to them. Yep. Whether it was just to be a friend, whether it was to comfort, whether it was to assist, there's a million ways you can be available. And I think when you're really listening to somebody and you have empathy for them because you're trying to understand where they're coming from, then you get to this place where you open up, you're like, how can I help you right now? This isn't about me, this is about success, this isn't about an award we're gonna win, this is yep. about how do I help you get to this next, whatever the thing is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, for a variety of reasons, for a variety of purposes, but I think that, that connection, when people see that authentic, happening authentically, that's yeah. deeply moving, and it's, it's um, I think that's kind of why people are here. Mm, absolutely, I, I, I mean, my dad, really showed me a clear visible picture of how you're made rich in your relationships um, there were people that flew in from all across the country that we had never met 
Pikes Peak, Boston, Washington, D.C., wherever he traveled. Yeah. And um, they flew in because they wanted to, you know, they wanted to meet us and they wanted to tell us about those moments where he showed up in their life and made a difference. Right. That we were completely unaware of, you know. Right. That's and, fantastic. Um, it, yeah. yeah. So that was, that was major for me. And then I, um, he also had a bookshelf that he kept in his garage our garage and I call it his garage. Did, did he have a separate garage? From your garage? Well, I call it his garage cause it was, it was like his office. The man, the man room. <laughs> we, yeah. we didn't have space for him to have like a real office in the house. So it was a garage and, uh, he would read books all the time off that shelf and they were, you know, it was all anything to, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't reading fiction. It was all anything he could to challenge his mind or improve as a person. And, um, that was always really important to him. And he always made sure that we had those books too, or if we went on road trips, he would play books on tape and stuff like that. Again, of course, I thought it was really cheesy um, until after he passed. And I wanted to, at one point, um, after he passed and I was grieving and I was in the home, it was just me and my mom, uh, I wanted to feel close to him, which I think most people do when they lose a loved one. And I didn't know what to turn to or, you know, really and then all of a sudden it clicked like go to his bookshelf i mean that's where he spent most of his time was reading he didn't watch tv he didn't you know he didn't play golf he read go to his bookshelf and i went to his bookshelf and the first book i read was man's search for meaning but it had victor frankl amazing um and it really helped me through that that grief process but um this is a holocaust survivor victor frankl yeah. who's writing about um how do you find meaning in such, again, this is another massive, yeah. the Holocaust is one of the classic existential crises. Yeah. When the most evil thing on earth can happen and suffering is as, ultimately almost as bad as it can get. Mm. Why does why does anything matter, right? Yeah, it comes down to hope. Right. Right, and uh, and so that, that was the first book I pulled off the shelf and every book had my father's handwriting. Most of them had his handwriting in the margins. Mm. And so I've started just reading the handwriting in the margins because I was just searching, certainly, you know, I just want to feel closer to him. I'm sure. searching for a message almost. So he's an interactive reader. Yeah. But I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand his, his marginal writing without reading the book. So then I had to read the books in order to understand the context of what his notes were about. And it really transformed my brain. It transformed, you know, the way I thought from that point forward. So, so needless to say, all of this was where my, this was kind of the storm that I was living in at the time um, when I moved to New York. And, you know, I, I kind of just stayed the course with what I was doing because I just, what I knew to do. But I was putting feelers out there and I was networking, trying to figure out, okay, what was this next big thing going to be? Because yeah. I knew it wasn't going to be dance. I knew I was closing the chapter on that. Yeah. Um, so I was you just put a still... feeler on Tony. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of saying it. Well, I mean, you said um, it. I'm just putting the words back in. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it just when I when we met and um, we had some pretty intense conversations right away. Our first few phone conversations yeah. were like six hours because wow, I wasn't. Tony gonna... speaks slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, my roommate knew that something was wrong or up because I was not a phone talker. I didn't stay on the phone very long so yeah I, I you know and he introduced me to what he did and and the work that we do now and the work that Tony was doing at the time um, it, it's it's people based you know it's all about investing into people and helping people move their lives forward whether it's financially relationally um, you know just in their personal 
walk in general, that, that's what it's all about. So it, it, it made perfect sense. And Tony, tell me about that. What do you, what do, you do? And uh, I mean, you, you, you're, it's not just Francis. You work with your parents, your sister, yeah. mother-in-law. Tell me, tell me what you do and how you got involved in, in your business. Yep. And um, you know, kind of explain it and, and help, help us understand what, what this business is that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, I, I was, when I grew up, my parents had lost a lot of money. I saw a lot of just terrible financial you know, challenges that they had gone through. That was through and, a furniture business that they yeah. inherited from your, your, your grandparents, right? <clears throat> yeah, my dad had inherited from his, his parents, and um, some bad things happened with the family, and parents lost a lot of money, went into a lot of debt, um, you know, certain things that, you know, went down that really shouldn't have happened. Um, you know, so I, I saw this, you know, financial roller coaster growing up. And, you know, as a kid, I just didn't want to be in that situation. And then turns out, you know, time had gone by, I was 22, uh, had a lot of debt, I was going to be, you know, a dad, uh, really moving towards being a single dad, you know, got married young, divorced young. And um, I just needed help. I needed some guidance. And, and I went to my dad. And, and How old were you when you got married the first time? 21. Okay. Yeah. So got married, had a kid, got divorced shortly thereafter. Like, you know, boom, boom, boom. Built up a lot of debt. How old were you when you got divorced? Uh, I was 26. Okay. Yeah, 26, so 27. You, had, you yeah. got married, had Vincent, your son. Yep. Lovely, lovely young man. Yep. And... Uh, and marriage didn't work, didn't stick, and so then you were here. Here you are, twenty six, and yeah, got some big challenges. Yeah, and and at at twenty two years old, um, I, I I knew I was already having challenges, and and I went to my dad and and said, hey, look, I you know I need I need help. I'm obviously, uh, maybe I don't know as much as I think I know, because um, obviously the the results that I was producing in my life certainly weren't weren't producing any fruit. That's for sure. So he, he connected me with some people. He opened up some doors, uh, and there was there was one individual. Uh, his name was Charlie. That really had just created amazing results. He he retired young, spent all the time in the world with his kids, loved his wife, had a great relationship. You know, he was financially independent, um, and. You know, I, I basically started to stalk this guy, ask this guy to to teach me, to help me, to coach me, and and he was working with my dad, so there was a there was a really good trust um, between me and this guy Charlie, my dad, and uh, and and Charlie, you know. So I basically they they started to teach me how to budget. They started to teach me, you know, what it looked like to actually be in business for myself. But but the thing that they really focused on was they said, Tony, look, if we teach you how to make all this money, but your life is a total mess you're going to screw it up again, right. you know? So they, they really started to coach me first in life. Um, and then the second part was business finances, everything else like that. And, you know, to make a long story short, you know, after, you know, I had become successful and then when Francis and I got together, my business was doing well, we were doing good. Um, but she brought a whole nother dynamic, uh, you know, to our business, to helping people, to coaching people. Um, you know, just, basic things that I think a lot of guys just miss or anytime you're in the middle of something and you have an outside perspective, a clear minded outside perspective, I mean, it could totally change, um, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing things. Cause you, d you just don't see it when you're in the middle of it. And, um, Francis was, was such a, a good partner, but, but she, she handled that transition with, with just so much grace. Cause a lot of people were like, Oh, well, you're getting together with a successful guy or, you know, whatever. And, and she really just, she was just super humble about it. And, 
um, really did the work um, that she needed to do to kind of get caught up to speed. So it wasn't a free ride. Francis jumped nope. in with both oars in the water, and I've, I've seen it happen. I mean, yeah. I almost wonder what you do now because Francis seems to do most of the work. I, and and I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you both have oars in the water, and you're, you're rowing together. Yeah. It's it's great. We have a lot of fun together, and I you know I think that just that just didn't matter to me as far as. Um, you know what any of the tangibles it was it was more about like you know hey this is an opportunity for us to really make a difference together and um you know i really could see the future down the road with the both of us and uh you know it's it's been incredible for our marriage like the fact that we work together it's brought a really cool dynamic yep. to our marriage in general because we we had to learn right away um <laughs> i mean almost immediately um how to be business partners and then how to build a relationship and then and then a marriage right um, and, and that's not easy no mm. no in fact that's maybe hard i mean a lot of people have two different careers and a shared yeah. life at home when they're not working yeah and in a way that can be easier because you don't have to be together all the time mm. yeah. you can escape yeah you can escape the relationship with the other life you have effectively yeah um have you had any challenges with working together where i mean is, has that been does that created tension or difficulty? It wasn't the work part. It was just the relationship part. And I just didn't know how to be in a relationship, to be, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I had a lot of baggage from, from my previous relationship. And, and even, from be, even before that, I just didn't know how to be in good, healthy relationships. You know, I, was, I grew up, I got into a lot of fights. I was a hockey kid. Um, I just... I didn't really see my parents model a good relationship until I was, you know, in my late teenage years and after they had gone through kind of a whole process of change. Um, so uh, I'm certainly, certainly so not blaming be, them. No, no, I get it. But when <clears throat> most of your learning and developmental years yeah. are before you're 18. So it's great when people can transform and, and yes. your parents are wonderful people. I've, I've met them and, and I know that they've changed a lot. Um, but you know, it's funny, you see, whenever you hear about, like, in, in a big company, in a big company, you'll see people sabotage projects or sabotage things. Yeah. And you're like, why is this person doing that? You think it's intentional. Yeah. And, in fact, like, you know, Harvard Business Review had a really good article on this, and they said, you know, the funny thing is, is most of these people don't even know they're doing it. Yeah. They're basically just acting out what they've seen in their home. Yep. You know, dysfunctional behavior that they learned. Yep. And it's really, really hard, one, to identify it yourself, and two actively change it right those are very very difficult act you know things to do most people don't they fail um right you know they change they keep changing jobs or they keep changing spouses or they keep you know i mean yeah. it's just whatever you, you you see people who go through just dam and we're all j damaged in a way but you know hopefully you know we realize it's not the world's fault yeah maybe maybe i've got a problem i need to fix right yeah that was the whole thing is is when when i started to have some people in my life you know one when Frances and I were having issues and, you know, to be totally honest and transparent, you know, she had, she had left me for, for a period of time. And I remember actually talking to my dad and talking to some other mentors that I had in my life that I was, you know, fortunate enough to have in my life. And they said, Tony, like, she ain't the problem here. You know, like you have to change this. And if you don't, you're going to be on divorce number two, looking for divorce number three. Right. And I think the thing that was the most impactful was having to say to my son, Vincent, who was, I guess at that time, he was, I don't know, probably nine, you know, um, like, hey, buddy, sorry, you know, dad screwed up again. 
you know, Fran, you know, cause he loved Francis. I mean, he loves Francis, yeah. you know? So I've, that was like, I've that definitely just, seen that. Yeah. yeah. That just, that, that thought crushed me. And then obviously losing Francis in general would, would be crushing. And so I just, I just made a decision like, okay, like I'm going to be really open and, you know, just, just open to receive whatever, you know, uh, corrective, uh, criticism slash, uh, just, just change that I need to do. And really what it was, Dave, was like, I, I just wasn't self-aware. Like until I started actually go through like some personality testing and have people really like list out like what I was doing. It was almost like we had, I had a couple sessions with <laughs> our counselor and, and some sessions just rocked my world when I became self-aware as to what my behavior was actually doing in two relationships in my life. Right. I mean, it just, it crushed me for, for months where I was like, I, you, you know, just so remorseful and just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've acted this way. Like what an idiot, you know? So, yeah. And, and, yeah. and to that point, I mean, I think one of the hard things we have talked about Brene Brown quite a bit on here yeah. and her work in vulnerability. I know you guys are yeah. familiar with that. Yeah, we love her. Um, so when, you know, the, the thing about vulnerability is you have to be in a place where you can basically feel, you know, we can yeah. be vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So what was it, Francis leaving that allowed you to get to this place where you could be vulnerable? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I was, I, I was in my mind. I was saying things like, "Well, I've gotten so much better from my previous relationship. I've gotten so much better from the times you know when I was a kid or when I was in my early twenties. Like, you know, so I've improved. And yes, technically I did, but I still wasn't near." being at that place where it was like, okay, no, you, now you're in a good place where you could have a healthy relationship. So I was putting all these band-aids and justifying why I hadn't really made that big leap to be vulnerable, you know, and to really open up and really, really, you know, put myself in a position to really change and grow. So when she left, I basically stopped trying to, to, um, make excuses. Yep. Mm. Fr Francis, what did you see or what did you experience? <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> no, be candid. Though. Seriously, be candid. Yeah. Um, no, and we and, and by the way, we're we're very open about this. Uh, you know, we found so much, uh, so many great things have come out of us sharing this with with people that we invest into and we work with, and people that we don't even know actually that have heard our story as it's been as it's been shared throughout our network and beyond, and how it's motivated guys especially and and women um to to open up and be more vulnerable it's really been incredible to witness and i'm so proud of my husband for going through that process because it wasn't easy um you know i think for a lot of men especially vulnerability is considered a weakness and well, i mean basically it, it's our you know our strength psychologically for anybody, but particularly, I think men, to yeah. your point, you know, the testosterone probably has something to do with it, um, is tied to our egos. Yeah. Yeah. Is tied to the sense of self that, you know, you develop as a healthy child. I'm separate from my mother. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and you have to go through that. But there's also a point where you have to realize, but there's a whole world that isn't just me. This, you know, the world doesn't revolve around my navel. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's self awareness. I think right? I'm not, not a psychologist, but I think you know that's yeah. that's right. Yeah. And and then there's a point, hopefully, where we become more fully formed humans, where we start to say, well, you know, maybe 
maybe when people are reacting badly to me consistently, it's not them. <laughs> maybe it's me. Maybe it's not Satan. Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's not the world. You know, maybe it's not whatever you want to label some yeah. monster out there. At some point, there's no one else. There's left no one. To there's blame. literally I'm creating yeah. these problems. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially if they happen over and over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, our relationship, just to take it take it back a few steps, our relationship was good, ninety eight percent of the time, but that two percent of the time when we would get into conflict, which was also cyclical, so it happened about once a month, mm. uh, it would you know it was it turned into be pretty ugly. And um, I was I, I have a I have a choleric melancholy temperament, so I'm pretty I'm pretty even. What pretty does that smooth. mean? Um, so so cholerics are, are typically, you know, like leadership driven. They can just be kind of just um, they're, they're typically, uh, I don't know, stronger personalities. And then I have this melancholy side of me um, that's that's a little bit more you know, detailed, but just, you know, just, just a big thinker. So you've got like thinking. a general and accountant living in, inside you? <laughs> yeah. Yes, okay. exactly. So, and they kind of, they kind of ca- cancel each other out sometimes. It can be really interesting, but, um, yeah, so I, but I, I'm typically a little bit more, uh, even keel and thoughtful in my approach. Another reason for that is because when my dad passed, one of the books that I read was the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz and the chapter on being impeccable with your word really sat with me and um so i i don't know i just in in conflict i've always choose my words carefully and so therefore if someone else didn't choose their words carefully it would don't stare at tony when you say that (laughs) (laughs) it would hit me it would you know it would pierce me a little bit deeper than maybe it would it would somebody else who's uh, a little more reckless with their words so that's what we experienced in conflict um, and then, and then Tony's Tony would be able to have a have a disagreement, kind of blow up, and then feel better about it because he got it all out, you know. But then for me, it would sit with me, mm. and then I would store it up in my Rolodex and you internalized and, it exactly. And um, and you took it seriously, very seriously. You took the things that were said very seriously. Where maybe in Tony's world, people say things when everyone knows they're emotional and heated, and it doesn't doesn't mean what the words were said is that is that accurate oh yeah yeah it's totally accurate and obviously when you become self-aware you realize how ridiculous that is (laughs) you know you can't just run around saying stupid stuff and and hurtful things to the people that you're the closest to and not expect that to leave any residue Mm. of course yeah Yeah. so i you know for some for some reason i mean it all makes sense now but in the beginning because I had been in other relationships before, and I had been with some guys who had a similar tent, and I just left. I didn't stay with, like, it was just clear, like, okay, there's there's a challenge here, I'm out. Like, I was very tunnel vision of where I needed to go, and I don't want to, but with Tony, I was like, oh my gosh, like, okay, he's so great, but this 2% of the time, you know, he can turn into the Incredible Hulk. So, all right, what do we do with this? Um, and I just, I just hung on, and I, you know, I just was real prayerful about, about it the whole time and then but if it just finally got to a point um where I couldn't stay any longer and I just I just said okay I can't I you know I've done all I can I've tried to read I've had tried to have conversations with him even outside of these moments and um you know we we had even gone to a counselor a little bit before then and uh he was just kind of he just wasn't ready he like wasn't ready to be vulnerable or be in that place where I saw that he was willing to do significant um 
significant work and, and change to really become the husband that, you know, I, I needed or I, I wanted to be with, desired to be with. Didn't mean I didn't love him. I loved him tremendously and it broke my heart, but I knew I had to make that decision to leave because I knew I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have a kid and, and, and have a daughter and say, hey, it's okay. It's okay for mommy, you know, to, to have these heated <laughs> discussions with daddy and for him to say these things. So, so yeah, the, I mean, and to tolerate that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, so let so, me, yeah, go ahead. No, so it was a, you know, it was a dignity thing and it was just, you know, it just, I, I couldn't allow myself to stay in that situation. Do you think, um, and this is kind of a, a question connected to this, and I think it's helpful to listeners who may be working through a lot, because we get a lot of questions from people about working through different issues, you know, whether it's somebody saying, hey, I'm, you know, I want to write, but, you know, I'm just not doing it, or, you know, or I want to have this business, but I'm not putting in, I'm, I haven't figured out how to break through and, and do the consistent work that I need to do, et cetera. How much of success, like, and I don't mean like just material success, but I mean living like, living a, a great life where you're happy, well-formed, doesn't mean everything's good all the time, but you're working through problems functionally, you have good boundaries on what's, you know, reasonable behavior and what's not, et cetera. How much of that is interior work versus exterior work? Oh, gosh. I think... Because you guys work with a lot of people who are also trying to change and break through barriers and actually create better lives, not just make yep. more money. Um, so they actually want to create lives where they're happy, right? Where they have functional behavior. and Because yep. otherwise you amplify. I mean, you can make more money, but you just amplify bad behavior. And that doesn't help anybody either, yep. right? Yeah, it just, it just highlights your character. You know, if you make a ton of money and you have bad character, you're... Obviously, it's going to just be highlighted, but, but I, you know, for people that want to become quote unquote successful in a relationship, financially, whatever, you know, if if they don't have a big enough need and or desire, they're just not going to do it. You know, it's it's change. yeah, it's like you and until Francis said, hey, either you ch- you know either change or I, I don't I don't I can't come back because yep. I can't can't my, be with you. It just that doesn't work, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I would say pretty much. 99.9% is internal, um, you know, and, you know, Most of it, yeah. a lot of people are like, well, how do you get motivated? I'm like, well, I, I just knew what I didn't want. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be in a crappy relationship. I didn't want to have to explain to my son why things weren't the way that they were. Um, from a financial standpoint, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be broke. I didn't want to be struggling for money because, you know, when you think of 90% of the decisions that we make in a da- on a daily basis are based around money. And, and our relationships. So those are two big topics right. that people typically suck at mm-hmm. their entire life. You know, so I, I was just super simple in my Well, because thinking. both take tremendous discipline yeah. in order to actually not just have typical results. I mean, it's easy to have crappy relationships. Yep. It's easy to just take from a relationship or to just react or to not have boundaries or all those things. Because... In order to have boundaries, you actually have to be deliberate about boundaries, yep. and then you have to enforce them. And once you do that, and you do that as a habit, it becomes fairly easy, and it creates much more functional lives together. But if you don't do that, it's really easy just to be dysfunctional and to repeat dysfunction you've seen practiced by other people who didn't have that discipline in your life, right? Well, yeah. That, I mean, is that right or not? You don't yeah, have to you know, agree with me. No, that's yeah. that's a hundred percent right. And, and and that was the whole okay. thing was was is we just yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I just looked at people and, and we said, okay, we are going to stop. I, I'm, I was going to stop listening to people 
who didn't have the results that I wanted in life in those two areas. And it was literally that simple. I stopped looking at people with bad relationships and getting advice from them. I stopped looking at people with terrible finances and stopped getting advice from them. And I started to look at people that were prospering in those two areas. And what I realized was, which is really, really scary, was everything I was doing in my life was the opposite of what successful people were doing. Which is, which is very common. Yeah, yeah. But, but a lot of people aren't honest about it. And because they're not honest about it, they go, oh, well, I'm kind of doing that. Or, or they'll give you all the, I mean, my favorite is, I shouldn't say this, this seems, sounds condescending, but you know, you'll, you'll meet people who give you all the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and you know, I've managed a lot of people, I've worked with a lot of people and, and I love them. And one of the first things I try and teach people or work with people on is, do the reasons matter? Yeah. Does, you're gonna tell me all the reasons why, does that solve anything? Does that help us move forward? Does it help us progress? Because if it doesn't, the reasons why don't matter. We, yeah. don't need, we don't need to waste our time on that anymore. We don't need to keep talking about them. Right. What we need to focus on is how do we solve this? How do we yeah. get to where we want to go? What's the end that we're looking for and how do we get there from here? Because, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the great thing about having, you know, being a CEO or having been a CEO is you don't, you have, you have no excuses. The board yeah. doesn't care. Yeah. The only thing that matters is did you, did you get this done or not? Did you do it correctly? Did, did we do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you didn't, the reason, you know, I always like to say, look, you can, let's talk about the result first. You know, here was the goal. Here's what, tell me where we end up. I don't care why right now. I just want to know what the result is. After you tell me the end result, do we still really need to talk about why? Yeah. Because all the reasons why, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, we always say success doesn't have sympathy for your excuses. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, 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 it's, everybody has something going on, right? Everybody has some sort of. There's always there's a million reasons or, to fail. Yeah, yeah. The, you yeah. Know, we could all point and, and create our lists and, and blame and point the finger at other people, but at the end of the day, none of that matters. You know, and it, it all comes back to you, right? And whether or not you delivered on whatever it was that you were supposed to be doing that day, did you invest your time into the things that actually mattered? You know, and and moved your life forward, or did you Which, sit and, and wallow in your excuse? Which ties right back into vulnerability. I yeah. mean, basically, blame. Is yep. the counterpart to vulnerability. Blame yeah. is an excuse. Right. Yeah. Blame is why I didn't do it. Blame is why you know I can't. And it's because of them, rather yeah. than you know I need to. Right. And I need to figure out how, and I still need to stop blaming everybody else and just figure out interior. You know, if it's an interior, you. Re, I think when you you recognize the value of vulnerability when you start to say you know the interior game is really what matters. Yep. The exterior pieces of this will fall into place when I fix what's wrong inside here. Yep. You'll, yep. Never fix the, you'll never fix the sickness by attacking the symptoms. You have to get to the heart of it, right? Yep. 100%. I mean, it, you know, there's a great book I'm reading right now called The Enemies of the Heart by Andy Stanley, and it talks about the four things, the four reasons, jealousy, greed, anger, and guilt. You know, the four reasons why most people don't, you know, move ahead um, in their life. And, and just to circle it back to Tony and that whole journey, I was so proud of him for going through that, for, for finding vulnerability and finding strength in vulnerability. And I think one of the other reasons why he was, he was, you know, of course I had pushed him to that point. And then he also trusted the counselors that, you know, he was, he was, um, going to fall into uh, receiving that counseling advice from. And some of those sessions were really brutal and really, really ugly. <laughs> Um, in terms of him really needing to hear what what uh, what was going on and to create that awareness for him, um, but he kept showing up. I remember him telling me like, "Ah, oh, 
do we have to go see him again? Or I, you know, was just dreading it every time we would have an appointment. And but he kept showing up, and then finally got to a place where he saw it as strength, and he really embraced it. And then the results that that and the fruit that that has created in our lives, within our relationships, and the people that we lead. I mean, it's hard to count. It's been it's been unbelievably. Um, incredible just to watch so it's all it all happened for a reason and that's the other point of things Mm -hmm. people look at their struggle as you know as the reason why they should fail well no that's the very reason why you should succeed right you know and every time we see a challenge we we look at it as okay well we're coming up against a challenge because we're doing something great right you know and so we've used our struggle in a really healing and helpful way and healthy way to help a lot of other people it was we needed to go through that to be able to serve other people the way that we do um and and that's what most people don't realize isn't it funny how like when you think about it like you think okay you you lead you you lead a lot of people i mean yeah how many people just put in perspective how many people do you in, in your organization you know of Clients, I mean, all, all the different, I don't know how yeah, to explain co- it very well, but how many people do you work with? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're effectively coaching, you know, upwards of 2,000, you know, plus people um, that we're connected to, but then we're, we're connected to some other organizations that are tens of thousands. So we're speaking, you know, in front of tens of thousands of people uh, every single year. And, and, and working directly one-on-one with a lot of the leaders. Yep. I mean, you're, this is like hands-on business, not just talking on a stage like motivational speakers. Yeah, no, no, no. Very, very, I mean, we, we really, really do life with people. And then, so what, I, what I'm trying to get to is I, I think, you know, the, the thing that's kind of antithetical that's different than what you might think is a lot of people would say, well, I've got to be the strong personality to be a great leader, right? You, you, yeah. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show them, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself on a pedestal. I'm going to have higher values. I'm going to do all these things better. And that's going to make me a great leader. When in fact, it seems like if I'm hearing you correctly, and I I agree with this, um, you know, we all fail. We all fall short of whatever goals we have, whatever values we have, you know, we, we screw up. Um, And I think it's to your, you know, to what you've been telling me, it's that vulnerability to say, I made a humongous mistake and I'm really sorry. And here's how we work through it. And here's how you yep. can work through it when you have mistakes. And by the way, you can admit them here too. This is a safe place for people who fail because guess what? We all do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it's, it's amazing. The people that I connected to the most. And I mean, if you just, I mean, gosh, you could go back to, the Bible, anything, nobody, nobody ever uh, got excited. Any of the stories in the Bible, it, it's all, it's about a struggle, a victory, you know, or a victory, struggle, victory. It's always that, that same kind of pattern. There's a cyclical pattern, right? Yeah. If, if, I mean, the Bible's the foundation of all Western literature, basically. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the great, it's, it's for the West, it's the great meta narrative. It's the great story that underlies all the great stories. Yep. Um, it's, you know, whether you're watching Thor or whether you're watching, exactly. you know, reading Jane Eyre, it's, it's the same story. Um, and this is Joseph Campbell, by the way, this isn't David Vanderveen. You know, if you go to Reed college, which is an agnostic school, they'll say the same thing. Like that's why they read the Bible at Reed college. It's not because they're, they're Christians. It's because 
if you don't want to understand literature and you want to understand humanities, mm-hmm. you got to understand the, yeah. the great narratives that, that drive people, drive humanity. Um, so you're, obviously you're talking about the Bible. Are, are you, if you don't mind me just backing up a little bit, how do you guys identify religiously? Are you Christian, Buddhist, no. uh, Muslim? Yeah. We're non-denominational Christian. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's funny, back back to that point, you know, when, when you look at people in terms of, you know, talking about vulnerability and whatnot, yeah. I related to people that went through the biggest struggle. Sure. And I, and I think as human beings, we do. And then it's funny, though, a lot of people have this idea that you have to be perfect. Right. And, and in fact, I, anytime I've seen somebody you know, put on stage or whatever that's quote unquote perfect, I'm like, well, I can't do what he does. Right. Or I, I can't be that good or not I'm not that yeah. good or, or whatever because I just don't hear about the things that they went through. Right. You know what I mean? It's not that they are perfect. Of course, they're not perfect. But, but that was the thing with us is when we started to see other people that went through great struggle, you know, and came out successful and not only came out successful on the other side, but what they learned through that process and the fact that they actually needed that struggle to become better mm-hmm. than right. they were, that's what really, I guess, and that's still, that, that's it's called what, the hero's journey. Yeah, yeah. That's what moved me so much. So like when I was in the, in the middle of all this shit, it was like, okay, well, all right, I, I know there's a purpose with this. You know, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to learn through this? How do I, how do I actually, uh, you know, improve not only my life, but the lives of others because of the mistakes, you know, the, the mistakes that I'm making, I want to make sure I do everything I can so that I teach other people not to make these same mistakes. And I think when people understand that it, it becomes incredible incredibly powerful. You're learning from the failure. It's not just failure for its own sake, but you're, yeah. you're learning from it and that failure is, is helping you become better, yeah. right? So, you know, like Joseph Campbell he's, did a whole series of TV specials. He, he wrote um, some amazing books, but he talks about the hero's journey, which is part of the meta narrative that, and again, it could be Jesus, could be superheroes. I mean, this yeah. is the same story. It's somebody who's going down the path of a normal everyday existence. They get wildly thrown off course and crash to earth or whatever it is and find themselves in circumstances that they never would have chosen. But if it weren't for those circumstances and it didn't unmask all of their frailties, they wouldn't have been able to become this totally transformed person. Yep. And it's that transformation process that allows them to become something they never thought they, they would ever become. And they, they wouldn't have if they had stayed on that safe, you know, safe track doing whatever it was and you see it in, in people i mean it's the people that take the big risks and fail yeah and then figure out why they failed and ultimately succeed that are the all you know that are like the superheroes you know the steve jobs the yep. uh, bill gates etc i mean you pick your favorite flavor um jeff bezos i mean there's a million of them but uh, not a million but there's you know they're the unicorns in a way yeah. but i also think you know the I talk about Mark Zuckerberg and I say, you know, yeah. my concern with Mark Zuckerberg is he's, he's kind of had like he, he hit it out of the ballpark in college. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm look, I, I know he's had, I watched his documentaries. I know he's had struggles along the way. It has not been easy to create Facebook. Yeah. But it, it's also been like one huge success. And I, I said to somebody, I said, you know, I almost feel, I almost feel bad for him because he hasn't had the opportunity to have big colossal failures. Mm-hmm which are ultimately what, what unmask us 
and strip away all the things, the crutches and the veneers that we lean on yeah. so that we can get to that vulnerable piece. And I, I'm sure, by the way, I, I'm, I don't know anything about Mark, Zuck, Mark Zuckerberg personally. So he probably has gone through that. And I'm sure he's learned a lot and he's a fully formed human. I'm not saying that about him personally. I'm just saying if you go through life without having, if it's just success to success, I mean, one, it would be the most boring story on earth. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wants to hear that story. Right. It's the, you want to see somebody go through that struggle to, to get to that pinnacle that ultimately brings you to this place where you become this thing that nobody would have ever imagined. Yeah. And that's what's, that's what moves people. And that's why and that story, for whatever reason, is what moves human beings. That's why it's called the meta narrative. Well, it was funny. We were um, we just had an interview with uh, Peter Malouk, who is the uh, president and uh, of of Creative Planning, and it's a huge uh, wealth management firm. And uh, they have you know right now, I believe, thirty three billion under asset management. And we had a great interview with them a couple of days ago, and and it was so funny because he had gone through a bunch of you know super entrepreneurial from the time he was you know young man you know, started up businesses and he had this really, really great um, CD store and he opened up like two or three stores and four stores and five stores and he bought out all of his, his partners and, and he hadn't made any, any money because he kept reinvesting, reinvesting and literally the, the two months after he bought out his last partner and I could be wrong on that but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. He had gotten two months of paychecks all right, he bought out his last partner and Napster came out. <laughs> and it totally crushed him. But his attitude was so good and he was so thankful. What was his attitude? He, he, he just said, he goes, look, he goes, he goes, what? He goes, it's not the fact that I wasn't cutting edge in the CD world. He goes, I wasn't cutting edge enough in the music world to see what was coming next. Right. You You're know, so focused on CD yes. stores, he missed what the cataclysmic changes happening. Exactly. In the exactly. And that's what he said. And he goes, so I've, I've applied everything I learned or every mistake I made in that business. I've applied it to you know what he does now with, with wealth management and, and whatnot. And so out of the resources you work with on people, so you, you help people get their finances pulled together. Yeah. And part of that is start saving money. Yeah. Yeah. Start. And by the way, start putting that nest egg someplace where it's going to be productive for you. Yep. Right. Um, you help people. I mean, you do a lot of different things. And Peter Maloof is one of the people, he's one of the, on the finance side of the resources you provide when you're doing your mentorship and coaching. Yep. He's one of the people that helps people get their financial lives in order so that hopefully whatever they're doing, like working with you and making, making you know, having fresh income and building a business and, and that they can start saving some of that too, not just yeah. blowing it on Cadillacs and, yeah, and, and yeah. just cars that they don't need, yeah. you know, or whatever else. I'm sure Cadillac's very nice. I'm not down on Cadillac's, but I'm just saying, like, not blowing it on things they don't need is effectively yeah. what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, our goal is to teach people to be responsible stewards of their money, you know, and um, and Peter's been a phenomenal resource for that. And I was just going to add, one of the things he said to us is he said, look, the reason why I've become so successful is because I've just gotten really good at failing. Yeah. I fail and fail and fail. But he said, I, but I never really got bummed about it. Yeah. He said, I failed so many times. He said, even when I lost the CD store, I, or when, I, when, when that whole thing blew up, he was just like, all right, all right, all right. Well, you know, what's next? He was just, I was just so energy driven to go on to the next thing. And he said, and, and think about it. If I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be where I'm at with creative planning. And, you know, I, he's got somewhere under... How many? 30, 30, 32 billion dollars yeah. in, in under wealth management right now, you know, and he could have just had a few CD stores. 
I, I would guess $32 billion in wealth management, uh, you know, under, under management, excuse me, is better than some of the CD, selling CDs. Well, that was the thing. He, he said we would never be where we're at if I had just kept, right. if those businesses had quote unquote succeeded, he goes, I'd, I'd never be here. It was the failure and the learnings from the failure that allowed him to make a quantum leap to the next level. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we should, and, and this is, you know, it's funny. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, a great documentary on a comedian um, uh, who was super famous. Uh, his name literally just jumped out of my head, but uh, he talked about, he was doing a show, the Larry Sanders show, and his name is, um, God, is, how did this jump out of my head? Super famous comedian who I know, who I follow, uh, love. Um, anyways, and what he was, he was, he created the Larry Sanders show. But anyway, he, uh, he was just saying, you know, they were having all this trouble on the show and on the set. And he said, you know, um, look at all the things we're learning right now. How lucky are we? And all the people were freaking out and having all these problems. And, uh, you know, basically, um, it all, it all kind of came together. But, but his point was, when things are falling apart, when you're in the middle of it, breathe, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're yeah. meditating now, correct? Yeah. And, and how are you using meditation? Yeah, so we, I mean, we, we probably implemented that into our daily practice a little over a year ago. Yeah. And it's, it's changed our, you know, it's changed so much about how we go about our day. Um, we, you know, we, we personally use the Muse headbands um and and the muse headbands are uh, they're like timers and how, how does muse i don't know how they it's really work. cool it, it tracks your brain waves okay so you actually wear it on the front of your you know it goes around the front of your head and back of your ears and it'll actually track your brain waves you'll you'll put in some headphones you'll listen to um you'll listen to the sound of the, the ocean and then uh if you get off track you hear birds mm. and so then at the end of the meditation it'll tell you how many birds well, the you birds know. are good. Oh, that's, actually, sorry. That's when you're, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I'm flipping it. Um, but if you get in a certain number of birds and you've had a good practice, if you don't get any birds, you had a, have a terrible practice. And I was what a little if you're skeptical. you're shooting the birds with shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was a little skeptical off. at first, but it really is accurate. Um, and so we do that. And then I also do, we also like to do gratitude sessions. Um, that's great in the morning so it's a lot of mindfulness absolutely mm-hmm. and that everything comes down to being intentional with your day um, how, how does gratitude session how does a gratitude I mean obviously you're grateful for me mm-hmm. by the way it was Gary Shandling somehow that jumped out of my head but yeah, okay. he has a, there's a, yeah. by the way there's a phenomenal two part documentary that Judd Apatow did on Gary Shandling that's oh. incredible um, huge comedian who had this incredible career but he was a you know yeah. mm-hmm. practice meditation um, was very intentional about it and was very deliberate about when you have failures, you, you in the middle of them, try and get the learnings, not just wait till the end of it. Anyways, but mm-hmm. so, so you're using, how, how does, how, how do your gratitude sessions? I'm, by the way, I'm very ADD. So if I jump around, you can always pull me back. Uh-huh. Squirrel. But the, uh, <laughs> but when you, when you, when you do a gratitude session, how does that work? Yeah. So we, um, and you were on our, you were in our gratitude session this morning, David. Uh, <laughs> um, Thank you, David's not here right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no. So, so what we do is uh, we, we think, um, you know, we're, we're Christians, like I mentioned before. So we thank God for, for things in our life. And every day it's different. So it might be, literally might be just the sound of a bird that we hear during the session. But um, we'll just thank, thank God for, for people and things and health and, and whatever it is that we're thankful for that morning. 
And then uh, the second part of the session, we thank him for things that um, we're claiming victory over that haven't been done yet. So that what that does is it, it, it clears our head, it clears the mechanism, if you will, of, of worry and doubt for things that we don't have control over that, you know, may not may not even happen, right? Um, so, so you're trying to eliminate fear, worry, and doubt effectively exactly. through the process. Exactly. So to give a real basic example, when I was pregnant with my daughter a little over a year ago, um, I would just think, I would just think, be thankful for a healthy delivery and a healthy baby just right. in advance, you know, and it, it would just bring so much more peace of mind and, and more of a calmness to the way I operated throughout my day. And if we don't do it, we feel a major difference. So yeah, the muse, the muse has been great. Um, one of our get, buddies. It's easy to get wrapped up in those feelings Absolutely. if you're not aware of them. Yeah. And if you're not kind of intentional about addressing them and saying, wait a minute, why am I? Like where are, where am I? Why yeah. am I? Why am I here? And what caused that feeling? Like I was reading Beekner, Friedrich Beekner, uh, earlier, and um, he was talking about Adam. You know, in the story of in the Genesis story of you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, and you know they they eat this fruit that they're not supposed to eat, mm-hmm. and then God comes. God <clears throat> God comes to them and says, "Excuse me, um, where are you?" Which is, you know, basically, why are you in this position? You're hiding. Mm. And then God says, which makes them say, you know, why are you here? What did you do to put yourself in this place? What, what's occurred, right? <clears throat> and the second question was, um, you know, why are you here effectively? Like, where are you? Why are you here? And so they say, we're hiding. Okay, well, why are you hiding? What did you, what did you do in the past to get you in this position today? And I think to that point, like it's kind of like when you're dealing with fear and doubt and worry, it's never about where you are right now, mm. which is really the only time we have. Right. The past is gone and the future hasn't happened. Yeah. And that's every moment. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's why the being present is so important. But I think that fear, doubt, all those things are about the spaces that we're not in. Yeah. And it's kind of this, okay, why... why it, the cool thing about meditation, I, I think one of the cool things, I think you're saying the same thing, I'm trying to relate to it, is I'm intentionally listening, so I'm trying to, to connect to it. But I think it's basically saying, okay, when you have this fear, when you have this anger, when you have this doubt, when you have this worry, just observe it. Why? Why? It's fine to have it, but why are you having it? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and sometimes it serves a purpose. That was one of the for things. For sure. One of the, one of the things that I, I had wrong for a portion of my life was that, fear should not exist but fear is quite healthy uh, yeah absolutely yeah. and I, but I everything was like you know no fear be fearless <laughs> right all these all these campaigns that get get put into your head and things a lot of 18 to 20 year olds say yeah and um <laughs> you know and, and I, I i shifted that perspective a while ago but recently i read big magic by elizabeth gilbert oh yeah and she has a chapter called the road trip and in that chapter she talks about fear and she personifies, she personifies her emotions. And as she personify fear, personifies fear, she really, um, she really describes its relationship in our life in a, in a really cool way. And uh, she says, look, you know, you need fear. Right. She's like that. I've met two types of people in the world who don't have fear. Toddlers and sociopaths. Right. Everybody, psychopaths. Every, or psychopaths. Everyone else has fear. Fear has told you, you know, don't walk down that alley, alleyway. Fear has told you step back from that cliff. You know, it's, it's served a healthy purpose in your life. It just doesn't have discernment. 
Right. So sometimes it shows up when you're sitting down to literally write a poem. Right. You know, and you just have to, to talk to it and say, hey, you know, thanks for your services. You're not needed and, and excuse it. Right. So you and address fear. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I think for a lot of people, though, I think that they need to eliminate fear in order to do to do great to do the work life. they need to do right yeah. so yeah. there so that we get those questions all the time like how did you get over your fear of this how did you get over your fear of that and i i just look at people and i say you know what i i don't think i ever did i i still have a healthy amount of fear in my life and you know what it still shows up in those times sure in those times that you know you're asking how did, how did i get over my fear of talking to connecting with people or talking on stage and big question shows up a lot still it's just how i dictate to to that feeling sure that's made the difference well and i also think like it's to your point right it's it's address it's it's understanding why you're having that fear and really digging into that yeah we do like in surfing um one of the things i did with the kids when they were little is we'd have you know it's big and you're afraid of these big waves and what happens if i go over the falls one of the things you have to do is you have, we do what we call take off and die contests. Like it's usually it's like how good am I going to ride this wave? It doesn't matter how well you ride the wave. What matters is did you did you go? Yep. Like did you commit to that wave? Yeah. And so we just do a thing where it's like I don't even care if you make the wave. What I care about is did you go? And and so the contest is who has the best take? Who just throws themselves off that lip? Mm into the cap you know into the freaking pit below yep. <laughs> and and because the whole point is you do that about five or six or ten times you start to realize nothing really bad's gonna happen to me it's all in my head right um and you also learn how to fall into all those other things but i and i think it's the same thing with contacting you know in our business when you have to go yeah. meet people yeah. and, and have and build intentional relationships and see if there's even a relationship there right um that's scary at first yeah and so, you know, one of the best things you can do is just say, well, what's the worst thing that happens? Somebody's going to yell and scream and maybe run away. Yep. Let's say that's the worst thing that happens. Then what? Right. Nothing. Yeah. Who cares? Well, you have to choose which fear is going to be more important to you. Right. And what I mean by that is, well, it's the fear of connecting with someone. Okay. That's so, that, if that's going to be so important to you that you're going to stay home and not do it right. or you're going to walk away from the situation. Okay. Well then, but what's the greater consequence of not doing that? See, my fear, when I get to the end of my life, my greatest fear is getting to that point and not having done the things you know, wish I had built that that business. Wish I I had tried these things. Yeah. Exactly. Because I because I fell victim to my own fears. Right. And I be I was too self centered and too self focused to push beyond that comfort zone and do things that actually, you know, would serve the world and, and give back to humanity. So that's my greater fear. Right. So both exist in my life, but I have to choose which one I'm going to, you know, which one I'm going to, which one's going to be sure. the most important. Being afraid of what people think about you, which is one you start to realize they don't think about you. And then two, it doesn't matter anyway. So why yeah. are we really worried about this? Right. And we're, you know, we're just sifting through humanity, finding the people that want to work with us. That's easy. Yep. It's only hard when you make it hard, when you freak out about something that no one else cares about, right? I mean, yeah. Um, and to your point, the more you show up and prove to yourself that you can do it, the, that's how confidence is built. That's the second question we get all the time. First is, do the work. You know, how do I eliminate fear? The second is, how do I build confidence? Just do it. Show do the work, proof. do the work, do yeah. the work. It's so funny. We were talking about writing last week, I think, on this podcast. And um, 
one of the books I recommended is a really great book um, by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art. And he's a great writer. Uh, he's written some fantastic books. But his book, The War of Art, is probably one of the greatest books on how to write. And it's something you'll see that comes up over and over and over again in, in great authors. And what they all say is, you got to do the work. You have to be very deliberate about actually writing every day for hours a day. You know, most people can write, I think most great writers can write maybe two to four hours a day and do, you know, meaningful work. Otherwise, you start to get bogged down and you know, just you can't be creative for that long. Um, and, but he's like, yeah, like I treat it like a job, like. I take a shower, I get up, I put my work boots on, I, I sit down at my desk and, I, and then I, I, I go to war and I do the work because your brain starts to, to give you all the reasons and excuses to do something else than sit down and focus and do the work. I mean, thank God there's concerta now because, you know, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> people with ADD. Yeah. Well, even like I have ADD and I've, I've had struggle with my whole life. And the thing I've known about myself, the, the way I didn't have the benefit of, you know, mind you know drugs that help you focus your brain which is what those do and they're really good at it um but one of the things i had to learn to do is i i knew that i would fight sitting down and doing the work until i actually sat down and committed to it and then i wouldn't be able to do anything else mm -hmm. yeah because that's that's a classic add behavior yeah. i didn't know that was but i learned about it later and i just learned that i had to like just put it's kind of like like today, when we were surfing in the Brook Street, and there was some big peaks, and and then the natural tendency is not to go to the main peak; it's to try and drop in on the shoulder where it seems safer. But that's actually not safer. If you go to the outer boil, to the biggest part of that wave, and and roll in there, it's actually easier, yeah. scarier because you're seeing the whole wave in front of you, and it's a big, massive wave. But if you do it that way you can get past all the other stuff and get so much more accomplished on that wave and you actually get yeah. a much better score. And it's the same thing, I think, in the difficult parts of work, whether it's prospecting in the business, whether it's, uh, there's a million different parts of it, yeah. whether it's writing, whether it's what, whatever it is you're trying to do. And I think people with ADD fight it worse than other people who, who can focus more naturally. But the, you have to go and you have to throw yourself over that edge and you have to just make yourself do it and do it and do it and do it over and over and over again until you get to a point where you're like, throwing myself over the edge isn't the worst thing. It's yeah. not that bad. In fact, if I do that, I get this great reward that happens. And yeah. so I'm going to intentionally go out whenever the surf is huge and pumping. I'm going to go to the outer boil because that's where the best things happen. It's also where the worst things happen. I did go over the falls pretty badly today in the final. But, but, <laughs> but... But that's half the fun now. Yeah. It's like, wow, I just I probably just had the best wipeout in the contest. Yeah. Or one of them anyways, you know. <laughs> well, it's funny, like that's I got, also a crowd pleaser. Yeah. It was funny, I got diagnosed with ADD when I was when I was a kid and and I always had that crazy ability to hyper focus. Right. You know, but then it's like so it's either and, and I'm still that way, you know. Um and it today, uh it, it, like when we when we go to do something and she's like this very much too where it's like either we are at doing something at Mach 10 right or we're not doing it you're either fully committed or not committed yeah. at all yeah. yeah and it's just like and that's why we've you guys are big terrible managers by the way yeah yeah <laughs> you're welcome yeah <laughs> you know because it's it's like we we just don't have that it's either like we're on we're in sixth gear or we're, we're not moving Right. You know, and so we just, you know, we choose to move, but we, we accomplish a lot in relatively short periods of time because we're able to hyper focus. And yeah, we, we've definitely had to learn some, uh, some balance in certain aspects of our life. But 
I think so many people that are trying to become successful, they go, well, I need this this perfect balance between my life and my work and my kids and this. And it's like, well, well, no, you're 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 not going to have that. You're not going to have balance like balance is It really does not. In my opinion, it does not exist. You know, yes. Do we have there's a fairy tale world? There's some fairy tale version of life where, yeah, you know, you there's it's it's whatever those. 50s and 60s TV shows where, you know, yeah. where, where, you know, the, the Brady Bunch or Leave it to Beaver or whatever, where people have this, you know, this life at home and the problems are these little minuscule problems. But yeah. it's really like no one's ever worried about the mortgage. No one's, there's no, no one ever gets fired. It's just this, you know, happy, clappy life that no one ever really exists in. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, when we look at stuff like that i think so many people have such a false reality of, of where they actually think happiness is right you know and and what they don't realize is is we're so happy when we're when we're we're in gear number six when we're doing mock 10 you know yes we spend time with our kids of course we do that's that's our number and one priority it, yeah you know but but here's the difference when when we spend time with our kids we're intentional about it you know, when we spend time with each other and we make sure that we cut time out for each other, we're intentional about it. You know, when we're working, we're, we're grinding it out. We're doing what we need to do so we get it done and so that we could, yes, enjoy that time with our family or whatever it is. But you also feel like you've accomplished something at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's not just this slow row where you're like, it's like Groundhog Day all over again. Like, what yeah. do we actually accomplish? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the worst thing, yeah. you know, just like cycle. The worst thing about Leave It to Beaver, I mean, I'm not trying to pick on Leave It to Beaver, but I remember that show growing up is June and Ward and the kids. I mean, nothing ever really happened. Mm. There was, yeah. I mean, they had these little, you know, it was a, an early sitcom and they had these little struggles every day or some little, you know, some little morality tale. But at the end of the day, like the back, the backdrop on that story never changed. Yeah, there was no there was no forward progress in any real meaningful way, and and to me that life isn't very interesting. No, I mean, maybe some people want that, and that's fine for them. But I, I'm very interested in progress and transformation and breaking through barriers. That's what this podcast is about. The reason we're doing this is because a lot of people are asking me how to do that, and fear, anxiety. I mean, somebody literally just asked me, like, David, how do you deal with fear and anxiety? And I think this is really a timely conversation because. We all struggle with this. There is no, there is yeah. no, I mean, the, the good news and the bad news is there is no easy solution because if there were, life would kind of suck. Yeah. Right. Like what makes it spicy and interesting and exciting, what makes the, you know, adrenaline course through our veins is the fact that we have these fears and anxieties, that life isn't easy and that ultimately it's that pain and suffering and fear and anxiety that makes it so much more fulfilling. Yeah. But the key is you have to dig into it. And you have to embrace it and you have to address it and you have to overcome it. Well, uh, is that right? I mean, by the way, no, 100%. I feel like I'm just saying things and you guys are like, yeah, Dave, you're right. And I'm like, really? Like, there's nothing you want to disagree with there? No, no. I mean, the funny part is, is, is so many people, they just, and and I was very much like this where it was just, here's the destination. Once I get to this destination, then I'll be happy. Right. And, and now my perspective has changed so much over the last several years. In our business, we have rewards and recognition at different milestones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the kind of the narratives that had in the old days, and it was when you get to this place, life's going to be great. Yeah. And I think what a lot of people realized is, oh, when I get here, life doesn't really change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, either it, I'm becoming better and progressing or I'm, I'm just getting to amplify worse. the problems I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're either moving forward or moving backwards. And, and I think one of the biggest shifts in my life and definitely in ours as a couple is we're really enjoying the journey. You know, and whatever challenge we have, we just we just look at that challenge as, okay, what are we supposed to learn from this? Where are we supposed to go from this? You know, how did we get ourselves into this position? Like, it's just a different outlook. And I think if more people had that same outlook when they have a challenge, they would they would live a totally different life, you know, and also enjoy the journey as they're going through everything. Yeah, we, I mean, we agree with you totally, David. I mean, there's nothing to really counter on that. You know, we, That's why I have you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we talk a lot about, you know, customizing our life. And so if you think of the opposite of customization, it's, it's things that are mass produced. Right. And so what you're talking Accepting about. Accepting what's being handed out. Yeah. 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 So what you're talking about with, with Leave it to Beaver and the Wonder Years and whatever these shows were putting into our minds was that, you know, this was, there, there was this ideal false life like you were saying that we were supposed to achieve you know and that would be kind of norm or success or whatever but but to me it's just this this mass it's the cookie cutter yeah whether it's suburban housing or or mass produced whatever it's everything yeah absolutely you know we were with rob bell last night with you guys and um I, i i appreciated what he said at the end of his play reading where he was talking. We were about. watching a play that he had written that was going through a reading. Yes. Pete what? Holmes was one of the readers, yeah. which was fantastic. Yeah. It was, and it was really fantastically interesting. What's a nucka? What's a nucka? What's yeah. a nucka? <laughs> Got it. It's going to be amazing. But but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, we, we enjoyed it a lot. And, and at the end, Rob came out and spoke um, for a little bit as, as far as his perspective and sort of, you know, how the inception of the whole, the whole idea behind the play. And he was talking about how life, you know, can present you with these ladders all along the way. And it's, you know, hey, when you're, when you're born, you're, you're expected, hey, to go right into the school system. And, you know, there's a ladder that's placed in front of you to get a good grade and you climb it, you know, you keep climbing it. All the ladders of success. Graduate. Yeah. And then you, you know, go to, go to a job and, you know, get good grades, get a good job. Everything's going to be okay. And it's, it's this climb the ladder, pro- climb the ladder, climb the ladder. Exactly. Yeah. And it's this mass produced like ideology that that's what we're supposed to do. And no one's asking, wait a minute. Well, what's this ladder leading up against? Where am I? What's why am I climbing? <laughs> right. All yeah. these questions that we should be right. asking. Is yeah. there another yeah. way? Right. right. Well, do I even want to go where this ladder is taking me? Exactly. Right. And so and, and that's why, you know, we we've just really fought you know, hard to kind of, to, to press against those social norms. And, and with a lot of the people that come to us, we, you know, first of all, they're coming to us because they want to create better lives. And then we, we sort of challenge those, those systematic ways of thinking that they've adopted as truth, you know, and get them to kind of uncover that and unpackage that and sort of reformat them um, based upon, you know, Hey, what is your core value system? Where do you want to invest your time? What kind of life do you want to build and create a new blueprint? For that do you encourage those people to kind of to really maybe kind of experience the wonder and mystery of the journey like of what they're going i mean yeah. is, is there a point where i mean because i think a lot of people are like oh my god i'm gonna have to change it's gonna be terrible <laughs> and life you know oh. it, it, but but i think really when you go through it you start to realize and i think that's what real success is you yeah. go what the process of going through that and the transformation yeah. you have when you go through it if, if you if you don't view it as pain, if you view it as, man, there is this wonder and mystery in the world and it's all around us every day. If we will just take the time to stop climbing the damn ladder 
and and be aware like to your point right tony being yeah. being aware of how i'm interacting with things and and what's coming back to me and what that means yeah um it i think that ultimately it starts to kill the fear in itself right yeah. because you're like wait what is this interact it's, this is the thing that always struck me about these movies about scientists who are in the field and they should be like jane goodall she should be scared to death of these apes mm-hmm. right of yeah. the of the mountain gorillas but she's not i mean maybe there's times when she has fear but the fear doesn't really matter because she's so infatuated with the curiosity of working with these amazing animals right that it's not about this thing killing me or not killing me. It's about what can I learn from these amazing, you know, mountain gorillas that that no one knows that I can share with the rest of the world. And that is so fundamentally important that the, the fear you have of a 800-pound yeah. animal crushing you <laughs> evaporates. Yeah. Her purpose is more important to her than her fear or her, you know, or the pain of, of overcoming whatever it is that she's looking to achieve. And that's what we... We constantly are messaging to to again the people that we we work with um, to to shift their perspective on pain. You know, we talk about embracing the suck a lot of the times because it's like, look, you the, just the suck. Yeah, mm-hmm. like things yeah. are gonna suck. You know, yeah. like a, a a big part of the journey is is going to suck. But you know what? When you get over those things, you're gonna be so much more proud of yourself. You're gonna you're you're reinventing yourself. You're 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 building this new you know, this new, this new person and you're, you're working towards your, your purpose in life, you know? And so it's, it's just, it's reformatting them to think about that in a different light. And I, you know, I was, I was born into a, a middle-class family with great parents. And, um, I always tell people like, look, people in my situation are very susceptible to complacency disease because mm. I had really good parents that really wanted the best for me in life and did everything they could to try to facilitate me, my brother and sister getting to that next platform. Well, what happens statistically to a lot of families like that is the kids get really comfortable in their comfort zone and anything that threatens that, you know, is, is you know, they, they want it to get out of their life. Right. You know? So they just continue on that systematic mass produced, you know, path, path yeah. um, to live that type of life. And so um, I'm really thankful for what I went through. You know, of course I, I would, I, I, my dad was my hero and, um, it was, it was the most tragic and emotionally gut wrenching event I've ever been through, but I pulled out all the positives I could and it really transformed me as a person. And I don't know that I would live my life with as much depth as I do now. I don't know if I would have challenged my comfort zone as much as I have. As one example, I'm sure there's a lot of other ones, but just from our conversation today, I mean, you wouldn't have gone into his library. Mm-mm. And read the books and the conversations he was having with those authors in the margins. Yep. If nope. he hadn't have passed away, I'd still probably be saying, you know, it was dad. He's just being cheesy, right? I, no, it absolutely huh. shifted my course, and uh, it was a redirection of my course, and I'm and I'm so thankful for that. And so that's you're also really fortunate to have a father who. Absolutely. Reads a lot and writes in the margins and is an interactive reader. That's that's not common. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, he left a tremendous legacy for me in that sense, and so that's what we're we're constantly trying to share these these parts of our life with people, and we really encourage other people to do the same because our story is only going to reach so much, so many people. Only so many people will be able to relate to Tony and Francis. But the people that can't relate to us can relate to a Dave Vanderveen, can relate to (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, a few. Uh, but, narrow yeah. list, narrow band there. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? That everyone's everyone's story matters because it can reach. Because then together we can we can all help each other out. So um, yeah, just knowing that there's going to be ups and downs. Another great book on that is um, The Entrepreneur Roller Coaster by Darren Hardy. Especially talking about anybody going into business to understand that it's not going to be just a straight yeah. line. You know, it's never kind of it's up curves. and down, man. Yeah, looks absolutely. like a looks like a heart monitor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's so funny, like just how your brain is wired. You know, it's obviously to, you know, protect yourself, run away from fear. You know, fear is bad. You know, uh, pain is bad. You know, but there's we talk about it with a lot of people that we coach and mentor. You know, there's there's certain pain that is actually really good and really healthy, you know, not physical, but but just especially mental. And when you get to that well, physical too, I mean, you think about you guys are both athletes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Physical when you're, when you're working out, if you don't feel pain the next day from your muscles, you didn't have a good workout. And and, and as a serious athlete, I know you played a lot of hockey, you served as a dancer. I think one of the great benefits of kids who have been in serious sports, you know, like at a collegiate level or at a professional level or at a, you know, at a club level, you get to a point where you realize this really awful workout yeah is what will transform my body to deliver these ex- unbelievable results i never thought i was capable of yeah. that experience and process if you've never had that yeah it's impossible to understand and i think that at least to me it seems i've, I've seen no, a lot I, of my friends you, who you have to go through it. who are not real athletes who they hate working out they get fat they go through all the things that most of us would at this age with the yeah. food resources we have available <laughs> to us right yeah um versus when you realize how much more effective your body, this is a really simple example, but when you realize how much more effective your body can be when you've yep. been in tune with it and you were in shape and you didn't have, weren't carrying the weight and, yep. you know, it's a, it's a deep resource to pull on yeah. that allows you to embrace the pain of doing, for example, an interval workout where yeah. you're pushing as hard as you can and then backing off, pushing as hard as you can and backing off because it's the only way you're going to get, you're going to fix it, Right. And I think it's the same thing. You can translate that same yeah. thing to almost every area of success in your life. Yeah. That until you are willing to submit yourself to a coach and a mentor, go through that pain and then see the transformation and embrace that, that transformation and success. The success is more of an outcome. Yeah. And it's nice to have the trophies cool, whatever. But no one really cares about the trophy. It was yeah. that transformational process and working as a team and, and being able to accomplish something you never thought you could have done that really matters. Yeah. And you start to realize, man, that the journey to get there is what we're all going to talk about for the rest of our lives. No one gives a shit about the trophy. Well, and, and holy smokes, it makes your life exciting. You know, it really You're does. doing something. Yeah. yeah. It's like there's a, there's a great alive. book, uh, Wild at Heart, um, by John Eldridge. And he basically talks about, you know, connecting back with the, the heart of man. Right. You know, and just, you know, a man wants a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, you know, and, and something that gives him a significance Right. In his life. I mean, so so the way that the human mind works is we just want things to be comfortable. You know, think about everything that we build in our lives from our homes, our cars, TV, everything. It's like, okay, is, is, is everything comfortable? And it enough? ruins us. Yeah. And it literally does. It literally ruins us. And, and you know, just connecting. It's, it's amazing. Like we one of our really our favorite trips is just going out and, and doing camping trips, which if you asked me a couple of years ago, you know, when she was like, let's go camping. I was like, let's definitely not do that at all. Like, that was a hard no. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I, I definitely don't want to I would sleep outside. Are you kidding me? 
you know, and it's not even so much that I like sleeping outside now, but I love, I just love walking and hiking and, and looking around and seeing things and, you know, and just being, being in the world, right? Yeah. Being in the environment. Yeah. Being connected to nature and obviously surfing. We get that a ton when you're out in the sure. water and, 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 you know, the waves are big and, you know, it's just, it, there's just such a different uh, connection that you start to have when you, you actually feel like you're alive. Immersed in the world. Yeah. So Sarah, you know, my wife, Sarah is not a huge fan of camping per se. Um, I'm not throwing her under the bus here, but we did a uh, we went down the um, the Grand Canyon on a, uh, a river rafting trip last yeah. summer or summer well, not this year but the summer before, and um, you know you're sleeping out under the stars on cots. There's rattlesnakes. There's all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff. It feels like you're sleeping under a hair dryer the whole time. I mean, it's so hot. <laughs> you know, we, were, we happened to be there during one of the hottest periods of the Grand Canyon. It's like 120 oh. degrees every day, and the water's like 50. So you're like it's like heaven and hell. You know, the whole time it's like it's like burning. I'm freezing. I'm burning. Freezing. But it's awesome. It's like yeah. it is. We wouldn't have traded it for anything. Um, I always tell Tony because his argument for me with camping, he's like, "Look, I I love to be in those places. I just don't want to sleep." on the floor <laughs> and I said okay wait a minute but I don't I actually don't think I want to sleep on the floor either but we have no other option yeah in those places yeah. right so it's about the experience of being there and then you just sacrifice you know, that's where the British the figured out safari I mean I'm just saying you know <laughs> <laughs> takes a lot of porters but man it works out well no but I think you know I mean I just did this I was just in Similu kind of remote north northwestern um, Indonesia off, off Sumatra in the Aceh region and typically, we've been on trips together to Nihiwatu, which is very five-star, right. remote, and and you're definitely in the jungle. I mean, there's pythons and uh, yeah. Komodo dragons and all kinds of, not yeah. Komodos, but, you know, the um, whatever the step yeah, down right. from that is, the monitor lizards, big ones. Yeah. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff. And we saw a big shark one day when we were out there. Yeah. Anyways, but the my point is that, you know, you can be in it. And also have five, you know, very lovely five-star ex- existence. I was in Similu. I was living in a, a hut that literally had woven, you know, palm frond walls, and water buffalo twenty yards outside my door, you know, um, walking around, <laughs> and cool. you know, no AC, no hot water, um, no booze, which was a big surprise to me, by the way. Uh, unpleasant, uh, but probably good for me. But it was cool because I was reading, you know. Um, Simple and Deep by Bo Lozoff. I was reading um, mm. a Mr. Uh, Mr. Rogers a, a biography, which is very you know Zen in a way. And I was working yeah. on my meditation and some other things. So it was it was a perfect time for me to be in that kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and all I would just basically surf my brains out and then worked on my worked on my interior stuff. But I think the the great thing about being in a simple environment is it forces you to deal with yourself and get down to the brass tacks and quit yeah. worrying about all the extraneous baloney yeah. and really, you know, yeah. get to the things that matter. It quiets the noise. So yeah. it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there endeth the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, again, like Tony said, those are our favorite trips because that's, that's where true bonding occurs. And I really, really had to sell him on it. In the beginning, you know, I said, oh, come on. Like, we, we can't Did he go. complain a he lot? Would say, Was he like a total bitch at the beginning? Mm. Uh, Can I say, honey? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I knew I that was. answer was Sorry. yesterday. Not yeah. anymore. But he, you know, I had to 
I had to explain to him because it would be like, well, but we do, but we go to Hawaii. And I said, okay, but we go into a hotel room where yeah. there's a TV. It's not the same. And, you know, so we have to, we have to rid of technology. And what's cool to, what's extra cool is to watch our son Vincent yeah. get so dirty and like he just, he gets and he loves totally it, he? immersed yeah. in, the, in the elements. Just loves it. Like we have to throw away all his clothes after the trip because he's just gotten so muddy. Because they're so, so filthy. Gnarly. And, and you know, it's the same with travel. Like there's, there's being a tourist where you're staying in a five-star hotel and going to a city, but never really interacting with anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. You can just look at it all. You can be a spectator. Right. And that's tourism. Yeah. Or you can travel. Yeah. You can immerse yourself in a culture. Right. Yeah. You know, try and learn the language, work with people there, eat in their homes, eat the food off the street. I mean, really, sometimes it has some painful consequences, but it's, you know, but but, but I think that's when you really are, you know, at least attempt to become a part of it, whether you really do or not. I mean, it's hard to break through a lot of cultural barriers, but... I mean, one of the great things about our business, you know, our yeah. shared business together is when you get to travel and work with people who live there and you're in their homes and you're learning how to communicate in their language and you're, you know, you're doing this together. It just, it, you learn something. Yeah. yeah. I love, um, I love the quote by Mark Twain where he says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. Yeah, exactly. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. And, you know, exactly what you're saying right there. It's a difference between just going to a place and staying in a box or immersing yourself in the culture and then what that can do, you know, especially for for young, young people as they're they're developing. It's 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 everything. Travels travels everything, I I, I think, especially now. I mean, there's a the school I went to Wheaton College. um, you know, it's a very conservative school. It, it can be very narrow in its focus. <laughs> and um, one of the great things that they started doing recently is a globalization program where they want all the kids to go out and do, as part of their four years, they have to go live and study abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's they were talking really about good. it. Yeah, it's fantastic. They were talking about a, a, a author, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who during World War II was a Lutheran um, pastor who left Germany to come to the United States to be in a U.S. seminary. And then he felt called to go back to Germany because of Hitler to oppose Hitler and to create an alternative way of studying. And, and the thing is, when he was in the U.S., he became open to other strains of Christian thought. And so when he went back to Germany, he didn't just go back to oppose Hitler. He went back to create this almost an, uh, non-denominational, non I would almost say not quite non-religious, but almost non-religious type of seminary mm-hmm. that was more about helping. Say, he, his whole point was, look, we aren't connected together. We connect through this, the, the great goodness, the God, the whatever you want to call it. Our relationship goes up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go across. Hmm. The relationship we have across is because of this thing we have, you know, right. that, that connects us to the one thing that, that started it all. Right. And... And so when he goes back to Germany, of course, the German Lutheran fathers weren't so fired up about this young upstart German Lutheran pastor starting this new seminary, yeah. right? And so when the president of Wheaton, Phil Reichen, was telling me all about this, and then I was sit, sat through a chapel, and literally a guy in the chapel was telling the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all the trouble it caused back in Germany when he returned. Yeah. I wrote a letter to the chaplain. I said, either to the president, I said, this is brilliant. I just don't know if, if you understand what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you've traveled yeah. and how much you've returned. I've done a lot. 
I said, you know, the great thing about this is all the kids who go out and come back will not tolerate the narrow-mindedness and the, you know, the navel-gazing that happens right now. And it will blow all of this apart. It will force, it will have to. Right. I'm just wondering if you're going to be the German church fathers when they come back or if you're going to create a different place for them to land. Hmm. And it was, um, I didn't get a letter back. <laughs> so I'm guessing church fathers was the answer he was, he was looking for. But, wow. but I think the point is I don't really care either because if everyone leaves for a semester or a year, you won't be able to stop the change. The transformation sure. will happen because we, we can't afford all the prejudice. We can't afford all mm -hmm. of the narrow bias. We can't afford all the small ideas right. that limit us. Yeah. When we right. see the rest of the world, when we, when we recognize that whether you're Muslim or Greek, whether you're Jew, whether you it doesn't matter. Mm -mm. They, people want the same things. Yep. Right. They, and, yeah. And, pl and, and placing them, you know, across the sea into someone else's life and experience and existence. And there's a new play out right now on Broadway. It won a lot of awards. It's called Come From Away. Um, and and it, it, it's kind of relates to this in a sense where, you know, it's a story about September 11th where one of the planes or many of the planes had to land in Canada. They got rerouted. Oh, Nova Scotia, right? Yeah. And, um, or Newfoundland? I don't know the name of the town that the play is built around. It's, it's, it's either, it's either it's, I can't remember if it's Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. Both seem yeah. equally yes. exotic destinations in Canada to me. And yeah. I'm sorry to all of Canada for, <laughs> for not getting that right. But yeah. But I, I know, and, I, and, and forgive me because I don't know all the details, but I know that generally... It was a, it was a remote northeastern yes. part of Canada. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so they've built this, this narrative now around the, play, or around the plane landing there with, filled with people from all different cultural backgrounds and it's belief an international systems flight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and landing there and now these these townspeople are embracing them into their homes thank god it was canada <laughs> yeah and but embracing them into their homes and then and then and then and then i'm sure finding common ground and i'm sure experiencing some friction but ultimately in a moment you know, of need being available to the other and then and learning and they learn from it as absolutely. much as the people who yeah. are benefiting from it learn from it right absolutely i mean i haven't all, seen the play i'm just guessing yeah and i'm sure the baseline of everything is love you know and that we're all people and we're all the same we're all made out of people <laughs> we're all made out of people <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah i i love that i mean i it's funny on a very 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 micro level I experienced that myself, being my being that my father was military, living in so many different states growing up. Sure. And the biggest shift was, you know, going from Alabama and a small town mm -hmm. to New York City. And so Big everybody Apple. in Alabama, you know, every time I go to back home to visit, they're like, you, you know, they call me a Yankee and, and have their <laughs> ideas about New York. And then every time I'm in New York or when I first moved to New York, um, especially people would be like, oh, you're from Alabama? Does everyone have their teeth down? I mean, yeah. I would hear the craziest you stuff. Your, sister, your brother? Yeah. Right. Like, are, <laughs> do people, you know... If a couple they... in Alabama get divorced in New York, are they still brother and sister? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's... But I'm not kidding. That's the kind of stuff oh, I would yeah. hear, you know, and from people who, but, fe wait, who are they, felt... Are they actually still brother and sister? David. <laughs> from people who felt that they were very cultured New Yorkers, right? Because of course New York, so I. But they I have just, no idea. But they're really they're. But they have They're it. just as parochial exactly. as. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it yeah, yeah. It, it's just interesting. Travel is is I feel so necessary to becoming a fully evolved. We're all parochial, anyway. and, yeah. and it's only by 
travel and exposure that we hopefully start to remove that pro that that's that small-mindedness that we have those, those barriers we have to our own beliefs yeah there's so much obviously more that brings us together than than actually divides us and until you actually travel and get to experience that you don't know that and it's so funny how people you know wherever they are they could be in middle america obviously major cities new york la whatever if they have not traveled oh, no 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 it doesn't happen in california yeah yeah of course of course not you know, um, but they just have, you know, these ideas that, no, like, you know, they have their own prejudices, you know, about other parts of the world, how people think, how people operate. And right. it's, it's really, it's, it's sad, especially, I mean, it's amazing how easy it is to connect with people with, with, you know, social media and technology, but how many people actually aren't connected? Well, how many people use it as a barrier yeah. to defend their own beliefs because they can't be vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But that, that's, that's a whole nother topic. You know, that's, that's <laughs> but, a, but, but, I, and maybe we can wrap it up there, but I think, you know, I think what, what I've taken away from this is that, you know, it's that creating a place in your own team, your own group, your own world where you demonstrate vulnerability so that other people can practice it themselves. Yeah. That allows for interior change that ultimately allows for people to have exterior success. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that a fair summary of, Look, people, talked about. people need to feel that they could actually do something and they, they're not going to feel that they could do something if they see somebody that's perfect yeah. or that's perceived to be perfect. Utopias never work. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I mean, you, you, the way that you, you speak life into people is by being vulnerable and telling them really what's happened in your life and really, you know, walking them through things because you've experienced those things, but uh, not because you say, hey, you know, I, I'm... Here's, you know, here's I'm, the rules. I'm, I'm Dutch and I'm six foot four and I'm perfect and I walked off a GQ magazine. You know that. You know that. That just doesn't. You know, I was kidding about the Dutch part. We know Dutch people aren't perfect. Um, you know. Well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but seriously, man, you, you, it's like you when you look at it, nobody relates to that story. People relate to people that have have gone through struggle. That those are the stories that we're attracted to. And the more vulnerable people are, and if you understand when you're going through that process of change of struggle that man that is the, the that's the part of your life that the best stuff happens apocalypse is okay as long as there is there's, there's redemption at the end yeah mm-hmm. exactly right yeah i mean that's that's what that's what makes life so great is when you're you're willing to share your heart with people you know and then that's when you're truly showing up and being authentic in your world and not only does it serve you well but it is going to serve the world around you well, and I did just look up the play, and you were right. It is uh, Newfoundland, well, the small town of Gander. And oh, I love cool. what it says because it says the musical has been received by audience and critics as a cathartic reminder of the capacity for human kindness, even in the darkest of times, and the triumph of humanity over hate. Let's go see that together. Yeah. Also, let's go to Gander, Newfoundland. No. Okay. No. We're going to go camping in Newfoundland. We just did this whole bit on travel, honey. Yeah. We're going to Gander. We're going to go to Gander that's, and we're going to do some camping. That's, that's great. Like I'm it. so That'd excited. <laughs> That'd be pretty rad to, see, to meet the I'm into it. No, I'm into it. We, let's yeah. do a podcast there. It'd be really, really fun. Nice. So... Thank you, Tony and Francis. This has been uh, thank uh, you. This has been a great experience. I hope uh, I, th- I think everyone's going to enjoy this, and if they don't, they don't need to listen to it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. It's interactive. I love your direct messages, your questions, your comments, and uh, deeply appreciate the journey that we're all on. Please, please engage and uh, help us all become better. Thank you.
be kick aspirational.